Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to another episode of the Quran Podcast. Earlier this week, on the 17th of Av, July 26th, we observed the first yacht site, the first anniversary of the passing of our dear friend, colleague, and above all teacher, Rabbi Adin Evan Yisrael Steinsaltz. Rabbi Steinsaltz was one of the most prolific authors and Jewish thinkers, not just of our age, but of any age. It has always been a privilege and a distinct honor to publish Rabbi Steinsaltz's works in Hebrew and in English, and to have helped him publish commentaries on almost the entirety of Jewish thought, as well as books on philosophy, chassidut, and many other areas of Judaism. We thought that a very fitting way to mark Rav Steinsaltz's Yortzeit here on the current podcast would be to re-release the episode we recorded for his Shloshim just a month after his passing with publisher Matthew Miller and with Rav Steinsaltz's son and the head of the Steinsaltz Center, Rabbi Meni Evan Yisrael. We take very seriously our role of the Steinsaltz Center and of course of Rav Steinsaltz himself to let my people know. And in the years since his passing, we've published several books in Hebrew and English that were not published in Rav Steinsaltz's lifetime, but it goes to show that his legacy continues even after he has left us. With that said, we hope you enjoy this episode, recorded just under a year ago, in honour and in memory of Rav Steinsaltz. This week we mark the Shloshim for our dear friend and teacher, Rav Adin Evan Yisrael Steinsaltz at Sal, who sadly passed away last month. We'll be joined by the publisher of Quran Publishers, Matthew Miller, who will be reflecting on his partnership and friendship with Rav Steinsaltz as they published over 300 of the Rav's books together. We'll also be hearing from Rav Steinsaltz's son, Rabbi Menachem Evan Israel, who will be sharing some of his memories of his father and the lessons that we can learn from him as a person as well as his Torah. We're joined now by uh, Matthew Miller, who is the publisher of Quran Publishers. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. If we could start with uh, just understanding the background of uh, how you first met Rav Steinsaltz and how the partnership between ourselves at Corin and Rav Steinsaltz and the Steinsaltz Center came about. Um, Jerusalem is a small town and the Jerusalem publishing world is even smaller. Uh, I met uh, Rav Steinsaltz originally through the late Thomas Nissel, who is Steinsaltz's head of development. And... Um, through the years, through various dinners, I got to meet Rabbi Steinsaltz a couple of times. But the partnership really came around um, after uh, many Evan Yisrael, uh, Rabbi Steinsaltz's son, returned from uh, a long sojourn in America and took over the uh, Steinsaltz Center as Mankal. Um, they, they realized quickly that they had not done well with the Random House Partnership in the 1980s. They had actually not even done well with their own publishing efforts from a purely commercial uh, point of view. I'm, I'm not casting any criticism whatsoever on the uh, uh, actual intellectual achievement um, of the Steinsaltz Talmud. And we quickly worked out um, an agreement because when I had restarted Koren in 2007, 2008, uh, we were looking at uh, Sidarim and Machsarim and of course Tanakh, we had never considered doing a Talmud. They were they, they came and they said, look, we want to do the Talmud over in English. Um, and on the basis that fools rush in where angels dare not tread, uh, we quickly formed a partnership. I think that combined both of our best aspects, uh, the, the massive intellectual achievement of the Steinsel, of Rabbi Steinsaltz and the Steinsaltz 
center of scholars and Corin's um, standards of excellence in design, creation, marketing, distribution, um, branding. And then thanks to the um, participation of the Noe family of London, we were able to create the Steinsaltz Talmud in English uh, in record time, literally a uh, eight and a half, nine year project due to the entire Talmud in the uh, in, in sync with the uh, Dafyomi cycle um, to the to an extraordinarily high and original creative standard. And even after that eight year partnership, we're still friends. Uh, we worked on the Steinsaltz Humash, um, the Steinsaltz Mishnah Torah, the Steinsaltz uh, Mishnah is coming out next year full color, and um, many, many, many of what we label the the little books, like Thirteen Petal Bros and, and and all of his exceptional works of insight. Uh, it's been a very happy partnership, and uh, long may it continue. What aspect or characteristic of Rav Steinsaltz will you most remember? Um, and are there any stories of your meetings with him that will uh, that that stand out? Um, he was wickedly funny, an iconoclast, and had this incredible way of disarming you from uh, out of third, out of left field. L- let me give you an example. Um, just when we were first starting the, re- the the commercial relationship, and before anything had really taken um, over, I had um, I had just come back from a meeting with uh, one of my children's um, uh, school. Uh, schools and it was I was furious um, I believe that if you're that that you should read a Hebrew book a month in school and if you're an ink from an English speaking or a Russian speaking or from a French speaking family you should also read a book in English French or Russian every month and the school had only been assigning um, uh, one book a year to read which I was devastated about so coming from that um, Experience. I came straight in, went have, had a meeting with Manny and Thomas, and Rabbi Steinsels was in the reception, and he made the mistake of saying, "How are you?" And I told him how I was. <laughs> I was furious, and I told him it's it's illiterate and the education's lousy. And he started laughing. He just started chuckling, you know, smoking his pipe and chuckling. I said, you know, I said "What is it?" He said, "He said, look, you have to understand something." He said, "What are Jews known for in Europe?" You know, over the last 2,000 years, it's supposed to be good with money, speak 10 languages, uh, you know, avoid the Cossacks. Um, you know, that, that's what the Jews in diaspora and especially in Europe were known for. He says, but look, look, at, look at the modern Israeli. He says, you know, whether it's, you know, they send their kids for 12 years of English education and they end up graduating high school without speaking a word. You... Um, the Israeli army is the best in the world. He said, uh, the land has made us what we were. He said, go back 2,000 years when we were free people. He said, you know, Israeli soldiers, uh, Judean soldiers, you know, the, uh, the quarters uh, in Elephantine in Egypt, or, you know, how many, how many Roman legions did the, um, did the uh, during the Jewish wars, did we fight, the, the two, three Jewish wars did we fight off? Uh, it was incredible. Uh, we did lose to the strongest empire in the world, but it took them five years to, to quell us. Uh, he says, Jews have become, the land has made us what we once were. 
She said, if you're worried about your son's education, don't worry about it. They're, it's not going to be what you think it's going to be, but it's going to be a different education. And that, that calmed me. And, that, um, and, I, and I saw things a little bit differently after he um, told me that. And I think that's very, very typical um, about Rabbi Spanzeltz. He just, he didn't play, he never played the intellectual game. He never played the game as, you know, straight. You know, you ask a question, you give the answer. He, he wouldn't do multiple choice questions. He would make you see things differently. Uh, he would he would recontextualize that which you previously understood or misunderstood. And I think that was his greatest strength. And I think that reflects in all of his works, from the Talmud to the Humash to a casual chat in the reception. So you were fortunate enough to have a somewhat personal uh, relationship with Rav Steinzelt. And I think you may have touched on this already, um, just in terms of how you, he, you approach each other uh, as individuals. But um, what, what's unique uh, about Rav Steinzelt's books? As, as, we, as, as you say, we call them the little books, like 13 Petal Rose, The Soul, Teshuvah, whatever, um, as well as his, his larger commentaries. Uh, what's unique about them and, and what do you think makes them so important that will hopefully help them to endure? Look, I, I, th I think, let me give you two slightly different answers. I think he, like I said, he's an iconoclast. Um, when you read his uh, interpretations of um, the uh, Avot and the Emot, you know, they were, it just, you see them as, as, as real people and far from making us less religious, less believing, their, humani their humanity and their personal frustrations come out and make us, make them even more endearing to us and we are more connected to them. Uh, in terms of the larger works, like the Tanakh and the, and the Talmud, I, I think the, the, the great, the great um, achievement has been, again, contextualization and clarification. Uh, to see the, the, the men, the, the sages, as men of commerce, men of industry, men of a community. They, you know, they weren't saintly figures, you know, floating around in the, in the, in the, in the cyber essence or whatever it is. They were, they, they applied real, they applied real world problems and real world solutions within the context of halakha. And that's the beauty. Uh, it wasn't a yeshivish argument, uh, some theoretical yeshivish argument. He brings out the, um, he brings out the, uh, again, the, the, the important contextualization without which you really cannot understand the arguments of the Talmud, of the sages of the Talmud. So I guess the one more question is in terms of what's next for the Corin and Steinzelt Center partnership. Um, last two years ago, we brought out the uh, the uh, Tanakh and the commentaries in Hebrew and subsequently in English. Uh, they're doing very, very well, exceptionally well. Uh, that same that that same efforts of contextualization and clarification come come through. They're very, very popular. Um, we are really looking forward to producing what's probably the, the finest uh, edition of Mishnah that is yet to have been produced. That'll be coming out in the first half of next year. 
Uh, we're already in our third or fourth printing of the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam's Mishnah Torah with Rabbi Steinsel's contact commentaries. Um, and we'll be looking forward to publishing that in English as well. Um, I don't, I don't think uh, there's a limit. The, 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 the well of, of available materials is, is huge. And uh, we look forward to a, a career of uh, continuing publishing his works bringing his Torah to uh, yet a new generation. Look, we're the last generation that knew Rabbi Steinsaltz. Um, to future generations, he'll be a name. But we have this hope that we will be able to continue producing more works as yet unpublished works by the Rav uh, for this new generation to familiarize and to disseminate his ideas, his teachings to a new generation um, whom I hope will even see greater potential. Uh, well, I really hope that this new generation finds more inspiration and more learning than even our own generation. Um, Rabbi Steinsaltz has really made a phenomenal contribution to the library of the Jewish people, um, truly a Rashi of our age. And um, we're, we're thrilled to be his publisher. Okay, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. And of course, um, Alex and myself are, are really honored to be working with you and to continue um, the amazing work and Torah of Rav Steinsatz. Thanks, guys. Take care. We are honored to be joined by Rabbi Menachem Evan Israel, who is the director of the Steinsatz Center and son of its founder, Rav Adin Evan Israel Zetzal, um, commonly known to many as many. Uh, thank you so much to, for joining us um, on this episode of the Corin Podcast. My pleasure and honour to be here. Um, so to get started, um, I guess for those who might not be so familiar, can you tell us a bit of a brief outline of um, your father's early years and background? Sure. My father was born in Yerushalayim to an um, extremely secular communist family, typical of the Aliyah of the 1930s. People, uh, his, his parents arrived from Poland, uh, they were Halutzim, and in Halutzim they were Zionistic and communists, which was very common in this time. He grew up in the house, um, from a very young age apparently, had interest in everything that one can imagine. Uh, inside that's something will follow him for the rest of his life, his curiosity. He, his curiosity was something that he, started from a very young age, was very talented in, in many fields of art and uh, sculpting and, and so on and so forth. So it really, it's something that th this kind of curiosity moved him on. He went to regular school in, in Ushalayim. Um, later on, we presume around age 16, maybe a bit earlier, my grandfather told him that in our house, we don't have ignoramuses. You can be a heretic, that's fine, it's very respectful, but you absolutely under no circumstance can be can be a can be a grammar, and therefore he appointed him a Talmud teacher. Um, again, the, the story is a bit murky because my father is being a very good through to his policy of you need to, you, are, you need to know bases and you don't need to know because why would you know about my life? It's not really important for anything. But that's what we got through the years. It seems that even earlier than that, he was very involved with a variety of small Jewish events. Uh, classes that he took, uh, community that he tried to create, but it was very early on. Um, apparently, one thing he had was a major benefit that most people don't appreciate it as much, 
is the fact that the man has um, not fully um, photographic memory, but very close to it. So his ability to recall spatially material that he actually learned or read is, is magnificent. So for him, for example, learning Talmud after he got the basic concept of it was much easier. Because for him to pick up on Talmud from Baba Mitzia and then Sanhedrin and then Nida was really significant. It was, you know, it's, it was really almost effortless. As ability of his comprehension. Um, around his uh, late twenties, he became the youngest principal in Israel. He ran a school for two years in the south uh, with a comprehensive school. I don't think he lasted too long. I think his desire to write and to have more individual relationship and teach took over. By the time we get to we get to the early. Um, early teen, late teenagers, beginning of the 20s, he was already a known quantity, on such level that the Lubavitcher Rebbe is writing a letter to one of the people around him saying, this guy, keep eye on him, we have to watch him, he has a lot of potential, it, which outstanding, I mean, the Rebbe never asked me about what I'm doing when I was 16, um, and it's amazing, it's quite astonishing. He, very, very early on, we know he had classes he gave on, in, in both, to religious crowd, non-religious crowd. He was very popular in the sense of that he really did all the notion everybody thinks it's so cool and hype that the rabbi looked like a rabbi teach secular people. He did it without any notion many, many years before. He had a class in one of the kibbutzim, kibbutz Gadera, I think. Sorry, the Ganya. Not Gadera, there's a city, the Ganya. And, and he was, again, it was, I think people liked him. He, 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 by nature, he was very shy. So it was part of the process of overcoming it is to be, you know, to be rough around the edges of the defense, really, but really trying to bring whatever he can to the outside. When he was 24, he started thinking about the concept of the Talmud. The first pamphlet was 1961, when he was 24. We still have one record of it. It was a little bit, it was very close to where the traditional standards look like, but uh, these differences clearly. Um, it took about a four or five years till the nation of Israel actually recognized it, and he managed to use this, my father, my grandfather connection, who was apparently a member of Alechi and something else, and did all kinds of things to who knows whom, and he was close friend to the government to, to, to establish a non-profit that will provide the funding or try to raise the funding to create the Israeli Institute for the Movie Publication, which is and probably was the, the, the main body, main nonprofit. That was his basically early age, and he started working on it. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned that the, the Lubavitcher Rabbah sort of was keeping his eye on your father. Yeah. Uh, when did your father's sort of personal relationship with the Rebbe begin, and sort of what did that look so, like? So, it's very interesting. Again, we don't have all the information, A, because my father's records were basically, some of them would disappear, which is normal for this kind. I mean, it's been 70 years, you don't keep every piece of paper you write. Two, I think some of them my mother keeps, which one day she will let us read them. Um, but then there was a lot of, we see a lot of references to him, that he asked Rebbe questions from again, a very young age. He asked Rebbe for guidance, how to do the Talmud. He, Again, talking about, I think from 19 on, he already had some kind of relationship. 
he did not feed the rabbit till till um, the 1970, when he was over in a position as assistant slash rabbi to Shazar, and he was sent on his behalf to the United States to be the representative of the president, Shazar, in, in a ceremony that was celebrating 30 years of the rabbi leadership. So they had a very good relationship, and, and it seemed that the rabbi appreciated his wit and appreciated his wisdom. They were definitely not equal, although most people don't misunderstand it. People, they were not equal. The rabbi is hundredfolds more uh, as a rabbi it's a different being in that sense the rabbi, my father was very close and had throughout my father's life the rabbi was the single most biggest influence my father had or desired to imitate or something that he considered as the source of his solace when he needed to ask question was on his shoulders he went to Lubavitch Rebbe I think the most famous story that can summarize the relationship is a famous story that he brings in, in the book, My Rebbe, is the story that he, in the, in the early 90s, he was really overwhelmed with work. Uh, we had the Talmud, the English Talmud, French Talmud, Hebrew Talmud, two institutions in Israel, another institution in Russia, relationship with the Italians, relationship with America, member of the biblical zoo in Jerusalem, and he had enough. And he asked the Rebbe to permission to to, to raise something and made the Rebbe a list. What can he raise? And the Rebbe, of course, Rebbe answers. I mean, I, I could have told my father that for free, but you know, my father didn't ask me. Rebbe, of course, circled the word erase and he erased it and he added the word lehosif. You know, obviously, the, 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 you know, the perspective of the story of the goat, you know, the famous story, the, the famous story of, of the goat that you have uh, the guy come to the Rabbi and say, Rabbi, I have no room in my house. Please, uh, you know, please help me. And the rabbi said, bring the goat in. And eventually the guy realized that once you take them all out, you have a lot of freedom. So in my father's case, the rabbi did exactly the opposite and said to do more things and more things. And the rabbi actually demanded from my father to do a variety of other things that were not as directly connected. Um, he pushed him to write more, pushed him to edit more. He pushed him to uh, give advice and things. It was quite astonishing. Yeah, something we've talked about before, I've asked you before in the past, is obviously that, I mean, and you can literally watch the video online. Um, can you just tell us a bit about why the Rebbe sort of encouraged your father to change his name from Steinsaltz to Evan Israel and how that sort of impacted on his life and your life? Right, so, so okay, so, so one, of the, one of the problems is that the Rebbe has a prerogative of not answering. That's part of the prerogative to be a rebbe. He makes decisions and you deal with it. I mean, that's what a rebbe. I mean, obviously, the, the obvious, there's two, there's two possibilities, and both of them are legitimate and both of them can concur, concur, incur at the same time. The first option is, as we all know, there was some kind of uh, mispleasure and uh, issues with the extreme Litva community. And my father really suffered. It, it was devastating on a physical level. I, I don't think my father cared about it on a professional level. He cared about the spirit, the, the emotional toll that it took on us as a family and, and, and his work. I mean, people, we got nasty phone calls 24-7. Again, I presume it was not the leadership. Uh, but again, people are, you know, you let, the, you, know, you let the mob act like a mob. They will act like a mob. Nobody will stop them. So I think it was a major tolling. So it's very possible that the rabbit told him, look, I'm having given you your best advice. 
usually when people have tsars, they're adding a name. Your tsars come from your name. Again, the Rebbe did not say it. Change your name to a Hebrew name. The tsars will be gone. That's option number one. We're not debating it. It's, a, it's an idea. Second option is about six months later, I was diagnosed with, with um, bone marrow cancer, uh, MAL, AML. And it was quite devastating and quite nasty. And it's very possible the Rebbe gave this as in order to change the entire family, not just my luck or my personal luck, but the entire family luck. As we, and, um, I, presume, I really don't wish it to anybody. One, one of the biggest devastating aspects of illness is that it's not only damaging the person who's sick, if the entire family is going through a process of pain and suffering. So if you give the cure, so to speak, or the spiritual um, light in the end of the tunnel, the, the, there is a benefit to this. People can see it and say, you know what? Yeah, I have somewhere to go. I have something, you know, I have some hope. So we don't know. But what's very peculiar, if you look in the video, which I watched, I think, hundreds of times, it's very peculiar. My father came to the Rebbe. The Rebbe gave him a blessing for prosperity. And the Rebbe said, you know, my father said, no, maybe in the next world. The Rebbe said, no, 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 in this world. And then my father leaves. Now, for the, from the perspective of just of humanity, I'm just putting it in small brackets here. If you look at my father's demeanor, his humility in front of the Rebbe is fascinating. You know, the man was, he knew who he is. My father knew what he has, what he does, what he did for Jewish people, no question. When it comes to the Rebbe, he becomes shrinking. He's doing everything fast. He's trying to get out as soon as he can. And he leaves. And then something very peculiar happens. My mother is giving the Rebbe an envelope, okay? I have no idea what's in the envelope, and my mother will not say what's in the envelope. But only after the Rebbe received the envelope, he doesn't open it, but received the envelope, he called my father again and tell him, go change your name, of course, with the acceptance of your wife. So it took my father six months after he basically back home, came back home, and he uh, contemplated what's the right name, what's the right thing. He chooses Evan Israel because clearly the Stein is a strong, can be a positive thing. Uh, Evan Israel, Rock of Israel, Stone of Israel, which really come from the verse in Book of Bereshit, Genesis, in the end of Parashat Vayechi, when Yaakov is blessing his kids. And one thing we bless yourself is Misham Roe Evan Israel. From there, you will view, or Misham, you will shepherd the Rock of Israel, which is again very powerful. Also, if you look in the names, of the family, which is really my brother is Avram, um, my mother is Sarah, my sister is Esther. They're all in that Israel. I'm, of course, you know, the black sheep. Yeah, nothing, you know, but it's okay. Um, when do you think you first became aware of, of your father's sort of greatness and the influence he was having on the world mm -hmm. uh, at large? So it's divided, again, it's not because I'm so organized, but my life, I think, was divided to three. Till about seven or eight, till I really got into school, you know, second grade, third grade, I didn't have any recollection. My father wasn't at home, but in that time, most people, you know, most men worked all day long. It was very, you know, very uh, European. You went back home in the afternoon and you went work at night. The fact my father went to work late and he was flying and traveling was cool was not anything I, I pay attention to. 
but really from second grade on to about when I was uh, equal of 11th grade or 12th grade, then I start realizing slowly that my father is a bit different. Hey, it was, you know, it was good and bad. You know, comments from teachers like, what would your father say? How can you not understand Gemara? Your father, you know, comments like this, negative ones. And of course, when you succeed, ah, was nothing out. Of course, you, you can do it. Your father, what? You know, you, you had that notion. But about when I think when I was 15 or 16, I actually got it. And the man is very, very, very different. That he's a genius and that he is, He's really for the public. He's not for the family. My friends told me a story about what their father did, you know, playing ball, go to movies together with him. I mean, I, I, was, not, I was not disappointed because I never expected it, you know. If you don't, if you don't hope, there's no despair, obviously. You know, there's no problem, there's no solution. But again, he, he did share the father. He gave his advice and he talked and he cared. When you needed him, he was there. For example, again, back to when I was sick, you know, my, my sickness took about three, three months from Tammuz to Yom Kippur, from, from July till October, more or less, about three months. And um, my father was there with me every night. Now, people tell me, what's the big deal? Your father was there every night. So, A, first of all, as I mentioned, it was very unique for him to spend the time with family. It's in that level. But two, from experience now, the last three and a half years with my mother, you try to spend two weeks straight in the hospital. You collapse. You basically, after two weeks, you say, I can't do this. You need help. My father was there every night. It's true that he went back home and slept a few hours, but he went back to work. I think the time I was sick, my father slept an average three, four hours tops a, a day. And this is every day. This is not something you can take off. You know, I will sleep later. This is three years, three months that you intensely there. So that, that is a father. He was there. And then... Later, when, when I started my, uh, my own professional career, I became a rabbi in about age 20 and um, immediately went to uh, stage, so to speak, to internship in Geneva. Then you got it. Then you got it. And when people tell you it was not just your father's family, it was a whole bunch of other heavier load you can explain. And, and even by the fact you start realizing that people want to speak to you, of course, because of your father's son, but also like demands of having my father come to Geneva or reports or so on, reporters, etc. That, that very clear, made this clarity. I made a decision very, very young age, I think a little earlier than 15, that I understand what my father gave for the world. And I understand that coming on our backs. I was very young when I realized it. And I accept this is what we call if I may quote a great author, J.K. Rowling, it's called the greater good. The greater good have to be accepted. If you are part of the greater good, the family doesn't get the same attention. And in, in the movies, in the books, the heroes die. You know, it, it's fine. It, it's what you have to do. The greater good always have to prevail. And I think that's what Father did. And without putting this commitment of time, to his writing, to his ability to teach and, and ability to convey his message, will never be there. So, 
as I mentioned, uh, I think the most, most, most important part is that he never stopped to care about learning something new. Whatever you want about him is his curiosity of literally looking for something new, willing to hear, willing to listen, willing to learn, willing to read anything. Whatever it was, whatever he got his hands on, he read. If it was art, science, fiction, um, culture, magazines, whatever he could get his hands on, he read it. And, and that is, I think, the first rule. I, I really hope that our leadership, whatever they are, will be as diverse as has, has, the mind should be as expanded, as, as great, and I think they can be anything. You, you can see it in his work constantly. You can see it in Talmud that sometimes you bring a word that nobody ever used from it's the ancient Greek or he brings this explanation that it's not a traditional explanation because he brings it from the outside sources. And he does the same thing in, in the Bible and definitely even the book like Akhania has a much more of a spiritual work. He will bring examples that most people want, but he also brings it from every, every walks of life, physics, chemistry, math, you know, whatever it is, in order to achieve his goal, to convey the best message that people can understand. That, that is definitely top, top notion. Be curious. Go, go and be more, ask questions. And if you can't get an answer, find somebody to give you the answer. Sometimes there's no answer, it's fine. That's one. Two, his constant vigilance to move forward. He never stopped. It was outstanding. I mean, you're talking about it. I came, I, I, I went to him when I was, uh, when we finished the Talmud in Hebrew, 2010. I went to him and I told him, you know, we have, really we have three options. Option number one is what, you know, typical uh, middle child want is to delay everything. Don't make any decision about anything. We're going to be procrastinating till later. Okay, that was option number one. Obviously, I didn't really think there'd be a lot of success here. Second option was to say to my father, you know what, now you stop all the writing, we finish the download, I will take care of, and I'm trying to get the funding to do uh, different languages. We started with English again, the no edition, outstanding work here. And then we know the French, and then we hope to do Spanish, we hope to do Russian, we need cooperation with the Italians. Absolutely, that's something to do. And you will go to the yeshiva, you will knit sweaters. I don't know, do whatever you want. Right? And then the third option, of course, was, okay, so let's get another project. So, you know, I, I basically, and we went through the project that we have available. There are six major projects that my father could have taken. Right? This Bible, this Mishnah, this Rambam, Talmud Yerushalmi, Zohar, and Midrash. Okay? That's the sixth major Jewish project that we did not tap in in the moment. Now, I thought the ideal thing is to take the Mishnah and, you know, it's enough. That's all what you need. What you need more of. Also, part of the work is already done on the Gemara. So, you know, it'll be easier. So my father, being typical of my father, and see what we talked before about the Rebbe's answer, said, no, we're going to take the Bible, both in Hebrew and English, which is outstanding. Then we'll take the Mishnah. Then we'll take the Rambam. And on top of that, you mentioned, I have a few small books I want to complete. Now, each one of those projects really is a lifetime project. 
Most people will not be able to do this in a lifetime. He gave, for example, the type of take the Tanakh in perspective, he gave 900, over 900 classes on, on video on the Bible. It's, and in between, he had cancer. Just to make sure, you know, it's not easy. He might as well have cancer also. It's unbelievable. The man had chemotherapy in his, in his system, which I know is not a pleasant, pleasant experience, and he continued teaching. It's unbelievable. That is the constant desire to move ahead. It's called one step ahead. And one step ahead. As this thing, as this recording is now done after the Shloshim, my father, about four years ago, went through a major operation. He had gaucho disease as since he was born. It's a nice Ashkenazi disease. Was in that time was only Ashkenazi Jews who have it. And basically the life expectancy expectancy was about pregnancy was about 40, 50. When he got to right age 43, they actually found a doctor willing to operate on him. My father's spleen is probably the largest spleen in the world. Usually a spleen is 100 grams, more or less. My father was at 11 kilos. Father was pregnant for most of my childhood. He had a stomach. It was really funny because, you know, it was really a pregnant stomach. But no. He had, uh, so we had his major operation. So there's a whole story about that, and we'll keep it in another time. But he wrote a letter to his friends and family. Not a will, um, really his last word. And I think that is the most important message that he left. I think nothing changed in 40 years. We have the message, and we will share with the world part of it. But the part we, we, we am going to talk about is the last, last paragraph there. Last paragraph says, I want people and my kids to continue the work of bringing together four elements which is very unique because usually in judaism you have three not four i want to bring the god of israel the people of israel the world in his entirety and the torah to bring them together because together let's forget a bit spiritual together they are represent the four letters of god's holy name then he, he ended and ended up with Shmaisrael. My father's message was very clear from a very young age. The world is not something to ignore. Therefore, we always did our publication, if you take the physical publication, even his first Talmud, he was much more pleasant to read than any other book. The, the art, the design, the, the, the notion around it was something that my father emphasized that the beauty of the world need to be used. So again, using in his book, obviously, the world around it, the world is entirely in, in, in its entirety, much more magnificent. But my father, when we went, when he went alone everywhere, the first request he asked, asking, Rabbi, what can you do? What should you do you know, when you have free time? He said, I have two requests. One, get me to a bookstore. Two, get me to a zoo. That was a unique concept of the man. I remember as a child, when we actually had family vacation, I think we can count four. My sister can get six, my brother can count three. We have four vacations. Two of them were work vacations. One of them, my father was in Princeton University, and the other one, he was in um, Woodrow Wilson Institute in D.C., okay? 
that was vacation for the family. He was working 16 hours a day, the usual, nothing changed. But one thing we did in all those trips, again, if I remember as a child, was going to museums. I saw all, I mean, all the major New York museums, all major Rome museums, London, Paris, London not, London was alone, but Paris, later on New York, LA, that's what he did. That's what he wanted. He really wanted to take the world around him. And that is the message we need to bring to our leadership, both religious and non-religious. You cannot ignore the world. The world is part of what we do. When talking about to become, you know, people love to use this. Tikkun olam, being light among the nations. The way of doing it is really to be real. To take this thing and make it ours. We are part of it. So read more, play more, go. Go to museums, go see art, go see architecture. Bring it back to what we are, bring it to our Yiddishkeit. You realize, part, you know, can say, and that's why I become a rabbinic, I know, I'm, and I'm apologizing in advance, is that Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Torah in the desert. Now, people can say, give the Torah in the desert because it's empty. No, give the opposite, he gives it in nature. God can be much smarter. God said, you know, I want to build the Torah. Let's do it for smartly. We'll build basement dish first. Nice, beautiful basement dish. Even on the desert, you know, we are creative people. We find a way out to do this. And we build a basement dish. Then we pull the ark inside. Then I will reveal myself to the Am Israel. Because that is the logical way you create religion, right? You create a temple for unknown deity come back and then you have a word the deity speaks blah 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 and that's what happened by the way in the book of kings when king solomon does it exactly what happened right king solomon finally built his brother his father dream he built the temple the amazing temple he builds it and then what happened god revealed himself but in the matan torah when we received the torah when the world was changed when that vortex of time take place the torah was given it's done in the desert around nature. It's true that the first, the four second, four and a half minutes the Torah was given, Ten Commandments, the world was silenced, the animals did not, but after that, imagine the commotion. You just heard Ten Commandments from God. What do you think people did? They turned around and started gossiping about it. Did you see the light? You, see, you know, they, they that description, we described the mountains so vividly. We are worried about animals going up, but that means there were animals around. That's the beauty. Bring the, bring the world into those other three things, to God, the Jewish people, and to the Torah. So, I mean, you, you, you hinted at it earlier. Um, and if, if you don't want to ask the question, it's, it's obviously fine. Um, but one of the things everybody was struck by, uh, by your father, was his humility um, and his genuine passion and desire to bring Torah to the masses and as you're saying sort of making Torah real for for everyone in an approachable uh, and a like a peace peaceful peace loving way um and he was obviously famously met with with a lot of resistance for that at times um at different times of his life um what are some of the positive uh lessons that perhaps you learnt sort of watching your father during that time and how he handled um the uh, the resistance that he met uh, during that period. So these, this, these again, there's three ways. First of all, 
most important the most the first step was as i mentioned to my one of my predecessors executive director of the institution was this is ping pong and ping pong you have to play with two partners i'm not playing that was the first rule i'm not we are not part of this conversation they can go be crazy they can be nuts they can be absolutely um I almost say ridiculous. They, they, they can push their agenda that I give nothing. Basically, what he's saying is I have nothing. I can't prove it differently. You cannot change the way they are. This is the way they are. I'm not part of this. I'm not taking a side of it. And that was the first rule. I asked him later on, I asked him in, in um, when I came back to Israel in 2005, I asked him, you know, why didn't you take a lawyer? We have about, we, I estimate we have about more or less 16 different competitions. You know, some of them have the full shots, half shots, whatever shots, whatever it is. Why do you take a lawyer? You sue everybody and the mothers for infringement of copywriting. It's very hard to prove that Amarle is not come from our Talmud. Amarle, I mean, you can sit in court for decades, literally decades. Just imagine the lawyer sitting there and doing all the pill pooling. And they know all this conversation. If then they took how many percentage they took from each other, you know, it would be ending for Two said, I, 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 you know, I said, so I, I look at me when I told him this, he looked at me in, in a very, uh, very lofty look. And he's like, our job is to expand Torah in the world. So maybe it's in our back, but that is part of the, what we want. We want people to expand Torah. This is the way it is. And we will take whatever we can to open Yiddishkeit to the masses. We need to also remember, when he started it, he did something that really annoyed a lot of people because he took something that people did not want to share. See, Hasidim did an amazing job. Hasidim took the spirituality of the world. They took the, the, the notion of, you know, you can talk to God. Everybody can talk to God. Everybody can, can reach divinity. And they took it away from anybody from the Chazanim. The rabbis kept the rules. You know, the, if you go to Yeshiva, then you're Talmud Chacham, then you know Talmud. My father took that and breached it. He basically broke it. And this is really an upsetting kind of act. Because you take something that was hidden, was secretive, was holy, and you let it to everybody. And so understand the reaction. But his purpose was that he, by the way, he proved it was correct. There is no better book than the Talmud to expand on. The Talmud is our core book. Yeah, we have the Bible and it's important, but the, really the Talmud is our book, the book of the people, book that we have a conversation about, book that we can play with is the Talmud. It's not, it's not the Bible. The book really we are struggling with more than anything else is the, is the Talmud. And that's what he did. He exposed it. And therefore, a lot of people throughout the generation, and throughout the time, got upset. But in reality, they all do the same now. So one day, father, or secretary told, told us in the Shiva, one day, my father gave a Hasidic class, one of the, long, the longest lasting class in the country. Started in 1960-something and ended up in 2015. It was every Thursday rabbi gave a class on Hasidut. Originally started in the, in the present house and he went to Hovet Zion, then he went back to our, to our center. What can you do? One of the people 
the, one of the listeners to the class brought his art scroll. What can you do? He brought that book to the sanctity of my place. He brought it in. So the secretary, my father assistant, not sure secretary is the right word, she came, my father said, uh, maybe I hide it before many come. So my father said, eh, you don't understand. He said, when I see these books, I see my work. When I see what they did, I see my work. I, we are the one who started. My father is the one who started expanding on learning Torah. This thing. People can say whatever they want. Literally, they can literally say any claim they want. In the end of the day, my father was the first one. And by the way, that's the reason why this harem, this negativity was so strong. Because they didn't even try, they didn't try to say, look, that was a product when I was ha happy. They tried to up to up, uphold his existence, to not uphold, to, to uproot, thank you, to uproot is its own existence. That was the goal. And that reason was so severe. But in reality, they only expanded it. Now, my father really acted like a king. He basically did not let him get into it. He was hurt. Uh, there's no question about it. And he was really happy. He was so happy that when when there was a celebration in YU, celebrating the end, there was a celebration opening the Museum of Talmud in, the y, in YU. My father was a keynote speaker, even though the Talmud was presented there was Schottenstein. My father felt that it was the right thing to do. It's funny because they asked him to speak, which again, it, it's very, it's very, the concept is very, very entertaining. Um, but that's the truth. I mean, we were the first one. My father was the first one to do this in that level, to expand it, to work on it. And everything that you see today is a direct result from his action. So I think it was very hard in the time. That's one thing he did, right? So one thing was ignoring it and saying, I'm not playing the game. The second thing he did is duplicate his effort. He's basically, he's basically really doubled his effort to, to do things. He, op he went to Russia. He opened the first yeshiva in Russia. Now, people don't understand that. It was the only yeshiva in the history of Russia that was recognized by the state. It was under the Academy of Science. Can you imagine this? This is Russia. This is still communism. is still lingering. Yes, it's historical start. But that's what he did. He went to Russia, uh, which was outstanding. And he got Velikov. He was one of the top scientists, the most respectful person in that system to open the first Jewish academy, aka yeshiva, under the hospices of the Russian government. Can you imagine this? It was the first time that people could come out from the underground and teach. That was what he did as a response to this thing. And that's again, it's part of his lesson. Always move forward. Don't let small hindrance to hinder you from moving forward. You always have to take one step forward. And you mentioned one story, the story before from uh, that was told at the Shiva. I'm sure you've heard a lot of stories over the past, uh, over the past month or so, but is there one particular favorite story you have or that you've heard recently about your father that you wanted to share? Can, can, can I share the fake story first? Sure. It's much more entertaining. So we're sitting there in Yeshiva, as you know, it was uh, because of the corona, we only had, you know, 1,200 people, 400 people, who knows how many people were there. 
And basically, it was a full day service, right? You start at 8 a.m. and you went on and on and on and on all day long. Those who are interested, you can see the record of this in YouTube and Facebook. But there's a guy, there's a guy that the family knows, and he's coming and he's very excited to have a story that we never had before. And he tells my family, you know, comes to my brother, said to my brother, Mechai, I have a story for you. When you were a child, I remember coming to your house. You were sitting on the, on the, you know, the kid chairs, the, you know, toddler's, uh, toddler's table. And your father used to hold a big book, big black book in his hands, presumably Talmud. And the other hand used to spoon feed you. When he says that, all four of us start cracking up. Now, the men getting offended. My mother said, look, this is fake news. My, he said, my husband, didn't you know what a spoon looks like? He definitely not know how to feed the kids. The fact that he had time on his hands, that was true. Anyway, that, that, was, that was my new favorite, um, my favorite story because I think it's, it's so outlandish. So these two favorite stories that I, I, I heard, and I think they are, they are, uh, they are in, they're my father. Both of them are very, very my father. Um, the, the first one is that my father used to give, again, just a fact story. My father used to give a class in Porat Yosef, Shiva Porat Yosef in Chovkis, Yal, Melat, in Jerusalem, in Tanya, every Shabbat. When we heard it, we were like, huh? Where's that from? And Rav Badani, which is one of the members of the council, the Sephardi Council of Israel, used to come to listen to me every Shabbat. My father maybe was 22, maybe. So that was one thing we liked. Ah, um, that 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 is one. The the other one which we heard, which is uh, again, it, it, it's a bit different, but I think that is the the unique stories. Um, get there. Uh, so the story goes that after my father had the stroke, after my father had the stroke. He was in the hospital, and Friday afternoon came a group of singers and sang. Right. So in the beginning, they saw what they saw from them was an elderly couple when the mother is taking care of the when the 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 woman is taking care of the husband, and it was very clear. It took them about six and a half seconds to realize who's the guy, and they they start aligning, aligning the songs. You know what they feel is the best thing. The next week, my mother said, yeah, should, they asked if they can come. They should come to, to be with my father and to sing. And my father said, absolutely fabulous. So they spent a whole week preparing for it, right? You know, they, um, I presume I can imagine that they sat at home and took all the nigunim that they can come up with. And, you know, they, they are clear memory. So they, um, they come to... Uh, they come to the, to the whatever, the, the yarder and the sing and sing, continue singing. And then all of a sudden, my mother said, okay, they finish, they do the show, they do the religious show, everybody got the song, and I said, okay, it's a, they asked my mother if she wants to hear something. She said, yes, I would like for you, I have you to sing the Beatles. One of the songs of the Beatles, I don't know if they have a specific one. And, you know, and that's what he did, you know, everybody probably learning it, you know, that's part of life. And then suddenly my father and my mother were very both enjoyed. As my mother is about to leave, you know, eventually my father had stroke and really had to be, you know, back to, to his room. 
some other turnaround to the to the singer and just said something in the, in the notion of the Beatles have Hasidus in them. The Beatles have, yeah, I, I don't know what she meant, but it, it, what I mean is that they have inner meaning to the song. It's, it's meaningful. It's not just another band. So, you know, and, and, and the singer the, was absolutely amazed by it. And, you know, they used to come every week. But then when he comes out from the room, he meets this one of my father's followers. And he tells him what my mother's told. And the guy said, no, that's impossible. And that is the focal point. For my father, this is Yiddish guy. This is, he can pick everything, exactly what I said before. What else you can do? I mean, the man was different. And that's, I think, one of the most beautiful really, stories we heard. It's like the fact that he was really, his vision was really broadened, and his finish was just broad and wide. Um, so you've already given us sort of a couple of uh, hints to lessons that we could all learn from, from your father and his life, and it's been eye-opening and inspirational so far. Um, but... What does the future hold now? You mentioned how at the end of the Talmud, the completion of the, the Talmud project, uh, you know, there were the six things that uh, your father could have tackled, including all the smaller projects, the smaller books, which are not small, they're life's work, as you said. Um, but what's next? What's, what's, uh, what's the future got in store for, from the Steins Art Center? So, giving, you know, our partners at Koren, um, we are... are First three steps, this is without getting to big steps, the three steps we have coming in is first of all the, the full commentary on the Mishnah, which is a 13 volume piece of art really about the Mishnah commentary with my, my father commentary on the Mishnah. That's 13 volumes. Then we're going to have the French Talmud will be the same design as the No edition, but done in France. It's another 44 books. Then we have just now, I think next month or so, we have the, the new uh, series, The Concise Guide to Judaism, which is five, which is five volumes. And then we have, um, then we're going to have the Tanya re reset in Hebrew and redone completely in English. As we only had in English about 30 chapters, we're going to do the entire Tanya in the next three years. What else? Um, we we developing an app which sooner or later be available. I think it's a good beginning. And just on top of it, if this is not enough, this is 60 something books here. If it's not enough, um, we have literally in our, you know, in the back, in the, in the storage, in, the, in our records and so on and so forth, we can probably produce another 40, 50 books easily, including the, including the two unpublished novels. But that's for another conversation. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Um, so about um, six or seven years ago, uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, invited to a small gathering in London with your father. Um, and it was sort of a Q&A. People could ask him anything. And someone asked him, you know, Admeh Vestrim Shana, what, what, what do you want to be remembered by? So... Uh, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but he said something along the lines of, you know, I've written my whole commentary on the Talmud, but I, I don't want that to be what I'm remembered by. Mm -hmm. um, so at that moment, I was just really struck by that statement on its own, just thinking, you know, if I wrote, you know, 
a parish on a single duff of Gemara, I'd be like, look at me, I'm amazing. And Steinsaltz wrote his entire parish on Shas and was like, I don't, you know, that's not what I want to be remembered by. Um, and that, that really made a big impression on me at the time. But what it meant was I don't remember what he said he did want to be remembered by. So I was wondering, what do you think he said? No, I, I'm sure he wants to remember not about the actual, again, I, there's two ways of reading it. One is that he might refer to his relationship to human beings, to his students or people who've been influenced by his words, his relationship with them, were plenty. But also, what I think what he meant to say, it's not about the commentary, it's much about the learning, but the ownership of the text. He didn't want to be told, here's another book that exactly the point. I, I think he didn't mean to say, okay, now I, I have another book, I read Steinlots. No, he meant that this book become yours, and eventually you don't need this, uh, this crutch. You basically can learn by yourself. You can take the text and it's yours. It's, it's ours. It's, it belongs to you. That's the thing what, really what he meant in depth. I want you that my ideas will move you forward. I want you to take and comprehend them. In a way, it's like his combination of the Rebbe and the author. You know, when one side you want somebody to be a, lead, a leader of people is one side, and the other side is the one who writes the information. When you combine the message and people actually take it in, then it's a whole different world because in a lot of ways you can read his stuff and come up with new stuff. And for him, that if you take from it something and you move to the next stage, you'll be very appreciative. You'll be very happy with it. So I think we've uh, perhaps taken too much of your time already this evening. So uh, I just wanted to say thank you for spending this time with us, sharing some of the stories of your father. Uh, the just you know looking back uh, when when uh, your father first passed away, the the number and the types of people who were you know wishing condolences and, and eulogizing is a real testament uh to the influence your father had and will hopefully continue to have for many many more generations uh on not just Am Yisrael but uh on the world at large and hopefully we'll be able to embody some of the lessons you shared with us this evening uh and you and your mother and your siblings should take uh, great comfort in uh the incredible things that he was able to achieve uh you know it's you mentioned to us before we uh, started recording over 300 published titles um and you know we touched upon as well many many more as yet unpublished um and so thank you so much for spending time with us and uh he's a chobarach his memory should be a blessing that's all we have time for for this episode of the current podcast we'd like to take this opportunity to wish a chayma ruchim a long life uh, to the entire evan yisrael steinzalt's family and to the rav's many many students all over the world. His neshama should have an aliyah and his family should take much comfort in the countless hours taught and studied in his memory. As always, if you'd like to be in touch with us with anything that was said over the course of this podcast or any other episode, you can reach us on social media at Karen Publishers or via email podcast at karenpub.com. Rav Steinsaltz's books are currently on sale at 25% off at karenpub.com until August 5th and there are several other generous offers available to help spread the Torah of Rav Steinzaltz. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another episode of the current podcast. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.